Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. I want to start today by talking about the stock market data from last week, which ended January 8th, 2020. And if you remember last week, it was a very, very crazy week with the runoff elections in Georgia that led to the Democrats winning control of the Senate, to the storming of the Capitol on Wednesday, and was a very turbulent week. And you would not be silly if you had expected the markets to go down last week. However, they did not. Instead, the markets went up. The Dow Jones Industrial Average went up about 1.6%. The S&P 500 went up 1.83%, and the NASDAQ went up 2.43%. And I know I usually talk about some other indices, but I want to stop right here because I think what happened last week is the very best lesson that we can learn about why it's important to invest prudently. Okay, all of the talking heads were saying if the Democrats took control of the Senate, the market would be upset by that. And why is that? Because typically the market likes checks and balances, especially if they're afraid that the party in charge is going to do more spending. And so everyone thought when the Democrats won, or if the Democrats won the runoff, that the market would react with a correction. Probably not a crash, but a correction. But instead, after the results of the election came in, the market went up. And then certainly as we're all watching in horror on Wednesday, as there's just insurrection at the Capitol, you would think the market would go down that day, right? I mean, it's really only only wise to expect the market to be concerned with something like that. But no, the market went up again. So what does that tell us? Well, what that tells us is not even people who spend their livelihoods trying to figure out the market. So people like me, people like your financial advisor, people like um, people on the business channel, okay, we're going to get things wrong. You as an individual investor are going to get things wrong. And there isn't anything to be done about that. It's slightly like the weather, okay? You can see everything coming together, but sometimes it just doesn't come together at the end the way you expected it to. So it's so unbelievably boring and tedious to talk about the balanced portfolio, right? Nobody wants to talk about keeping a good, balanced, diversified portfolio. Everybody wants to talk about Bitcoin or the latest NASDAQ stock because that's fun and exciting. And yet at the end of the day, the way you don't screw up your investment portfolio is by being boring, by being diversified. 
When you think you know what the market's going to do and you go all in on that belief, if you're wrong, you can be found on the wrong side of the market. And it happens all the time. People are just sure that the market's going to do something and then the market doesn't do it. So I would encourage you as we're beginning a new year to talk to your financial advisor and find out if your investment portfolio is invested the way you think it is. You know, make sure you understand what you own. Make sure you know why you own it. And as sort of general educational advice, this isn't investment advice because you'll read it in any textbook. Make sure you're diversified. Make sure that you've got a good blending of things in there, whether you're choosing to do it with mutual funds or exchange-traded funds or really diversified stocks. Just make sure you're diversified. Make sure that your risk tolerance level matches, which means that you've got some investments that aren't as highly correlated to the stock market, like bonds, that you're invested in to help bring your risk tolerance level to where you think it ought to be. That way, when a week like last week happens, you're not caught completely flat-footed. Because if you had gone all in on taking all your money out of the market prior to Tuesday because you thought, well, if the Democrats win the Senate, then the market's bound to go down, you would have lost an opportunity to make money. Now, at the same time, we've had a market going up a lot for quite a while now. We've had a rally that's extended for months. And there are a lot of people out there who are expecting a correction. And the correction was generally expected to center around politics. You know, sometimes the market's looking for the reason to correct. And so it'll get something like the Georgia runoff. It's like, oh, look here, this is our opportunity to take some risk off the table, to go down a little bit. And yet that didn't happen. How long will the market continue going up? The truth of the matter is nobody knows. And now that all of those big moving events are behind us, it will be something else. And again, no one knows what that will be. So you want to be careful on the flip side that you aren't overly aggressive. Because remember, markets don't go up forever. They never do. And when they correct, you need to be careful that the timing of that correction doesn't tie to when you would need your money. So again, look at your risk tolerance level. Don't let the fact the market's been going up for a long time convince you that, wow, I need to go all in and buy more stock. At the same time, don't let kind of scary events make you want to be a turtle and pull your head inside the shell and get completely out of the market because both of those two extreme positions will tend to get you in trouble. And they tend to get you in trouble because we actually can't know the future, however much people in my profession think they can. So you don't want to get backwards to the market, out of it when it's going up and in it when it's going down. And the way you avoid that mistake is through diversification. So take some time this week, look at your portfolio, make sure you understand it, make sure it matches your risk tolerance level, and you'll be a lot better off. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. 
And I got some more details on the second round of PPP loans. Remember, those are the loans that if you own a small business, you can apply for the loan to help you pay for payroll. And then if you qualify, that loan becomes a grant and you don't have to pay it back. Now, if you applied for the first round of PPP, you need to be looking to apply for the forgiveness for that because I think that deadline is coming up. It's really pretty vague. And so make sure that you don't let the first round of PPP go without your applying for the forgiveness for it. So it somehow doesn't turn into the loan when you expected it to be a grant. But even if you got money the first time, you'll be able to get money the second time, assuming that you meet some qualifications. So first of all, the deadline for application is through March 31st. And if this works like the last time, you'll need to get in earlier rather than later. In fact, if you have a relationship with a bank, I would recommend that you go there to try to get this new round of PPP. My sense the first time was a lot of people who didn't get the PPP either didn't have a relationship with a bank, so they were trying to go in and apply at institutions where they didn't have accounts, or they went to big giant companies because they assumed that it would go better if you went through like one of the major national banks, when in fact you are probably best served going to even a local bank if you have an account there, if they know you there, you're much more likely to qualify for it. So don't wait until March 30th to try to do this. I suspect the second round of money will be gone long ahead of that. So the second rule is you have to employ 300 people or fewer, which, you know, this is supposed to be for small businesses. And I would certainly define a business that had 299 employees in it, pretty good sized business. So it's 300 or fewer. And if you applied the first time, you either need to have used that PPP loan or plan to use it. So why would you not have already used it because of the deadline? Well, some people just applied for it with the idea of keeping it as the loan because the interest rate was really low. So they'll let you apply for round two, but you have to use round one. So if you didn't intend to try to convert it to a grant, then you've got to go ahead and use that first round of PPP. I suspect most small businesses blew through that money a long time ago. Now, here is the big difference between the first round of PPP and the second round of PPP. So listen up, because if this doesn't work for you, you're not eligible for this round. You have to have a minimum of a 25% reduction in gross receipts, and I would probably use the word revenue there instead, during any quarter in 2020 compared with the same quarter in 2019. So what that means is you have to look at the money that came into your business, and in order to qualify for this second round of PPP, there needs to be a reduction of revenue of 25% in any of the quarters. So maybe in Q, two of 2020 that you had a 25% reduction over what happened 
in 2019. Remember, Q2 would have been April, May, and June, and that was when everything was shut down and all the businesses were struggling. So if, if you're trying to apply for it, my first advice would be to go ahead and look at your Q2 revenue from 2020 and compare it to your quarter two revenue of 2019. That's where you're most likely to see the biggest difference because that's when most of the country was shut down. But go ahead and check it quarter by quarter. As long as you have that reduction in revenue, you're eligible to apply for this round of PPP. If you don't have that reduction in revenue, you're not. And you know, this is a really good way of trying to make sure that the only people who get it are the people who actually struggled as a result of the coronavirus. I think it's a better methodology than saying, oh, well, if you're in this industry, you can't possibly have suffered last year, because I'm not sure that's accurate in some cases. So I think that doing the revenue check was a really good way of making sure that, in fact, you had struggled. Now, if you qualify, again, it's like the last time, it's two and a half times the borrower's average monthly payroll during 2019 or 2020. Remember last year when you applied for it, it was only the 2019 numbers. This year, they'll let you look at your payroll from 2020 instead. I guess just in case that you were the business that got to hire people and your payroll costs were higher than they were in 2019. I suspect in actuality, your 2019 numbers are bigger than your 2020 numbers. And if they're not, I have a feeling your revenue didn't go down by 25%. So I, I suspect you're probably better going back and looking at 2019, but certainly do it. Look at 2019 and look at 2020. And the maximum amount is $2 million. Now, that's a lot of money. Remember, the first round of PPP was $10 million, and that irritated a lot of folks because it let money go to really big companies that had um, more wherewithal in reserve. PPP is designed to keep your local diner open, to keep your local hairdressing salon open. It's not really designed for some of these bigger chains that have the revenue and the resources, and don't kid yourself, the lending capacity. They can walk into a bank and get a loan where most small businesses actually can't. It's really hard to get a small business loan. Now, because we don't know what coronavirus is going to do, because there appear to be some new strains, the rollout of the vaccine is a little bit lower, I would recommend that everybody who has a small business go ahead and check your revenue. And if in fact you qualify with that 25% reduction and you qualify on everything else, I would go ahead and apply for it. Even if right now you're not sure you're going to need it because you don't know what's going to happen this year. And then use the money like you're supposed to do, then apply for the forgiveness for it afterwards so it doesn't become a loan. And I think it's a really good strategic business move Obviously, talk to your own financial person, talk to your own CPA. Maybe there's a reason this is a bad idea for you, but it's very important. Cash flow is king. It's the lifeblood of any small business. And if you can do something to help regulate your cash flow, even if right now you're not sure you'll need it, you might change your mind down the road when you don't have the opportunity to fix it. 
thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And before I talk about today's topic, which is how to choose a financial advisor, I want to tell you a story about my mother and the stockbroker. So my background is not finance. I have a background in English and education with a degree in creative writing, but my mom retired right at the peak of the dot-com bubble in the stock market in 2000. And she met with a stockbroker after she retired and he asked her what her goals were. And because everyone was making money then, my mom said, well, I'd like to make some money. Well, the broker decided that that sentence would be okay for him then to classify her as aggressive. She's a 63-year-old woman who has just retired. She doesn't have any more income. All she said was, I want to make money because I was in the meeting. And so he defines her as aggressive and proceeds to invest her in high-tech single stocks. And the only diversification he gave her was a high-tech mutual fund. Well, this was March of 2000. And we all know that that was the very, very height of the market. And so the market starts going down and mom starts losing money. And I called the broker. I said, hey, what's going on? Oh, well, our analysts think it's the bottom. And no, she should invest more if she has it. This is a great buying opportunity. Buy the dip. Well, she didn't have any more money. This was all she had. And so she lost and she lost and she lost until at the worst of it, she lost somewhere between 40 and 50% of her 401k. And I know that the argument is, oh, don't sell, it'll come back. Except remember, they were high-tech single stocks. They didn't come back. They went bankrupt. As I'm watching this, I'm horrified, but I don't know what to do because I don't know anything about the stock market. Well, I met a friend of my husband's who traded stocks for a living, and I said, Walter, how do you make money at this? And he gave me some books to read, and they were books on trading. It wasn't like CFP books or how to be a financial planner book. It was just how the stock market works. And as I was reading, I saw that really what this broker had done was just put mom in everything that his firm was trying to make a market in. So every day he would get the phone call about what stocks to push, and that's what he put her in. And I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified. And as it went on and I got angrier and I started telling people, you know, hey, this isn't right. You need to be careful with this. My mother eventually said, I want you to take over talking to the broker and making the investment decisions because I trust you and I don't trust him. And I just completely flipped. I panicked. And I don't think I slept for months but I started really studying. And I decided that if I was going to be under that much stress to try to make my mother back her money, maybe I should consider a new career. I, I had three degrees and things that did not have the word finance in them, but I thought, you know, I think this is really what I'm supposed to do. So I did an internship because I wanted to make sure if I got into a financial office, I could stand it. And then I opened my own firm 
a couple of years after that, and then went on to become a certified financial planner practitioner. But I started out in this because of what happened to my mother at the hands of a broker. And part of the problem was my mother didn't know what a broker was. And in 2000, honestly, nobody would have thought to have asked the question. Remember, the internet was still really new in 2000. It's a very different world 20 years later. But I think it's important when you're choosing a financial professional to work with that you know some questions to ask them. And then work with whoever you want. Okay, I'm not going to, in this segment, tell you the decisions you should make. I just want to give you the questions to ask so that you can make your own decisions and do what makes the best sense for you. So, most of this is in no particular order, but I'm going to end with what I think matters the most. One question that I want you to ask anyone you're working with is what credentials do they have? I am a very big fan of the Certified Financial Planner designation. A Certified Financial Planner has training in how to help you figure out how much you need for retirement and how to help you figure out how much insurance you need and what kinds of things you would do to lower your taxes and many, many, many other topics. It's an unbelievably difficult test, especially for an English major, and you have to really, really know your stuff to get the certification. And then once you get your certification, you have CE requirements because this industry changes by the day and you have ethics requirements and you have to have a bachelor's degree. So because most people are investing to try to meet financial goals, that's why I think the designation matters. You don't have to agree with that, but I want you to talk about any designation your advisor says that he or she has. And then I want you to ask them one more question about those designations. I want you to ask them what they had to do to earn it. How long was the course of study? Was there an exam? Are there CE requirements? Because there's a lot of designations, quite frankly, you can earn after a couple of hours seminar on a Saturday, and that designation doesn't have the same value to it as some of the other designations do. So ask them what they had to do. The next thing I would encourage you to do is work with someone with experience. Now, in order to use the CFP designation, you have to have three years of experience. Obviously, if you're new in the field, somebody has to work with you in the first three years or you won't be in business in three. It's always better if a new person can start in an established firm, but if they don't have the experience, you really need to have great confidence that they're going in all the right directions. Experience is always going to be your friend. You also want to check their background. Have they been in trouble with the regulators before? And one of the best places to do that is to go to the FINRA website, that's F-I-N-R-A, and there's a big broker check link on the first page of that website. So go to FINRA, and then look at broker check and type in the name of the person you're thinking about working with and see if they have a regulatory history. What have they done in the past? Have they gotten in trouble? Have they gotten banned from practicing in a state? All of these things are really, really important. Now, if you want to continue working with the person, that's fine. 
I would follow it up with a lot of questions because getting sanctioned by FINRA is a pretty big deal. They don't do it for no reason at all. So it's very, very important to know it's happened and it's very important to know why it happened. The next thing you need to know is how the advisor is compensated. I am not going to get into some big fee versus commission debate today, but I am going to tell you, you need to know how the person is paid. If they're paid by commission, that's fine. Ask them how much. I really think you have the right to ask them how much commission they earned from selling you the product. And sometimes they'll say, oh, you're not paying me for this. But what they're not telling you is the firm that created the product is paying them. And often that leads to a surrender period. So it's not just how much you paid them, but how much money did they get from any source? And if you're okay, if they got 10% of the value of the money that you gave them and they got it from the company that created the product, then that's fine. I'm not going to judge that, but I think that's information you should know. If they're fee only, they're also taking a percent. Some people, there's not a lot, but they might actually do an hourly rate or they might do some form of an annual fee, but everyone is getting paid. Don't believe for a minute the person you're working with isn't getting compensated for what they're doing. They're getting the money from somewhere. You need to know where it's from. Sometimes you can ask an advisor for references. You have to be careful with this because of privacy. If they can't give them to you, it's not necessarily a bad sign, but it doesn't hurt to try. And then finally, they need to act as your fiduciary. That is a legal standing, and that is saying that they are going to put your interest first. It's very, very important that the person that you work with have the legal standing of a fiduciary because it's a hard enough industry. It's hard enough to make money for clients. It's hard enough to make right decisions for clients. You need to work with someone who's putting you first. Remember, this is a job interview and you're interviewing them. They want to work with you, but you get to control how that conversation goes. And it's very important that you do it. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. Remember, if you have a question for the show, you can go to askpeggy.com. That's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com and submit your question. You'll see a link on the home page. You can click the link, type your question in, and then I'll get in contact with you if I need any more details, and I'll be able to create an answer then that can be educational for the audience. Remember, I can't give investment advice, but I'm happy to answer questions about what things mean or what different strategies are or what a piece of legislation means. So contact me with your questions. I'd love to hear from you. Today's question is something that I get very often. I got it this last week as well. If I make changes to the investments in my IRA, will I owe taxes? And I think a lot of people don't really understand how an IRA works. Think of an IRA as a vase of flowers. So the IRA is the vase and the flowers are what you put into it. 
Now, unless you actually take money out of the IRA, then you're not taking a distribution. The flowers in your vase are your investments, and you can do anything you want to inside of that vase. It's the vase itself that's the deal breaker. So you put your money in the IRA, and then you make any changes you want inside of it. It's not taxable. However, if you take a distribution of cash out of the IRA, that is what creates the taxable event, not the buying and selling of securities. So unlike a normal taxable account where you sell and you have capital gain, in an IRA, you only pay tax if you take a distribution and you pay the income tax rate, not the capital gains rate. So don't worry about making the changes. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.